This is In the Arena, the debates and lectures of Dr. William Lane Craig. In this program, Dr. Craig debates Professor Herb Silverman on the question, does God exist? For more, go to reasonablefaith.org. Good evening. I'm glad to be here tonight and uh, want to welcome all of you to this interesting debate. And I want to thank Faculty Forum in particular for inviting me to participate in the debate tonight. And I'm looking forward to a very good discussion with Dr. Silverman this evening. Now, I'll leave it up to Dr. Silverman to present the evidence against God's existence. In my opening speech, I want to sketch briefly six lines of evidence that weigh in favor of God's existence. As a professional philosopher, I think that God explains a wide range of the data of human experience, including philosophical, scientific, moral, historical, and existential considerations. Number one, then, the ontological argument. In order to understand this argument, you need to understand what philosophers mean by possible worlds. A possible world is just a way the world might have been. It's a complete description of reality. The actual world is the description that is true. Other possible worlds are descriptions that not, are not in fact true, but which might have been true. To say that something exists in some possible world is to say that there is a description of reality which includes that entity. To say that something exists in every possible world is to say that no matter which description is true, the entity will be included in the description. Now with that in mind, consider the ontological argument which was discovered by Anselm of Canterbury. God, Anselm observes, is by definition the greatest being conceivable. If you could conceive of anything greater than God, then that would be God. And thus God is the greatest conceivable being, a maximally great being. So what would such a being be like? Well, he would be all-powerful all-knowing and all-good, and he would exist in every logically possible world. A being which lacked any of those properties would not be maximally great. We could conceive of something greater. But what that implies is that if God's existence is even possible, that God must exist. For if a maximally great being exists in any possible world, he exists in all of them. That's part of what it means to be maximally great, to be all-powerful, all-knowing, and all-good in every logically possible world. So if God's existence is even possible, then he exists in every logically possible world, and therefore in the actual world. We can summarize this argument as follows. Number one, it is possible that a maximally great being, God, exists. Two, if it's possible that God exists, then he exists in some possible world. Three, if God exists in some possible world, then he exists in every possible world. Four, if God exists in every possible world, then he exists in the actual world. Five, therefore, God exists in the actual world. Six, therefore, God exists. Now, if 
might surprise you to learn that steps two through six of this argument are relatively uncontroversial. Most philosophers agree that if God's existence is even possible, then he must exist. So the whole question is, premise one, is God's existence possible? Well, what do you think? The atheist has to maintain that it's impossible that God exists. He has to say that the concept of God is incoherent, like the idea of a married bachelor or a round square. But the problem is that the concept of God just doesn't appear to be incoherent in that way. The idea of a being which is all-powerful, all-knowing, and all-good in every possible world seems perfectly coherent. So, I'll just leave it to you. Do you think, as I do, that it's at least possible that God exists? If so, then it follows logically that God does exist. Argument number two, the argument from contingency. The deepest question of philosophy is why does anything at all exist? Experience teaches that premise one, everything that exists has an explanation of its existence, either in its own nature or in an external cause. You see, anything that exists is either one of two types. The first type is something that exists necessarily by its own nature. Examples? Well, many mathematicians think that numbers and other abstract objects exist in this way. If such entities exist, they just exist necessarily without any cause of their being. The other type is anything that has an external cause of its existence. Examples? Mountains, people, galaxies, planets. They have causes outside themselves which explain why they exist. Now, it's obvious in premise two, the universe exists, whereby the universe, I mean all of space-time reality, not just our observable portion of it. It therefore follows that the universe has an explanation of its existence. But what sort of explanation is it? Well, it seems plausible that three, if the universe has an explanation of its existence, that explanation is an external, transcendent, personal cause. Why? Because the cause must be greater than the universe. Think of the universe, all of space and time. So the cause of the universe must be beyond space and time. Therefore, it cannot be physical or material. Now, there are only two kinds of things that fit that description. Either abstract objects like numbers or else an unembodied mind or consciousness. But abstract objects don't stand in causal relations. The number seven, for example, has no effect on anything. It therefore follows that number four, the explanation of the universe is an external, transcendent, personal cause, which is what everybody means by God. Number three, the cosmological argument. In one of the most startling developments of modern science, we now have pretty strong evidence that the universe is not eternal in the past, but had an absolute beginning about 14 billion years 
years ago in a cataclysmic event known as the Big Bang. What makes the Big Bang so startling is that it represents the origin of the universe from literally nothing. For all matter and energy, even physical space and time themselves, came into being at the moment of the Big Bang. As the physicist P.C.W. Davies explains, the coming into being of the universe, as discussed in modern science, is not just a matter of imposing some sort of organization upon a previous incoherent state, but literally the coming into being of all physical things from nothing. This description holds not only for the standard Big Bang model, but also for quantum gravity models like that of the famous physicist Stephen Hawking. Thus Hawking reports in his book, The Nature of Space and Time, almost everyone now believes that the universe and time itself had a beginning at the Big Bang. But then the inevitable question arises, why? Why did the universe come into being 14 billion years ago? What brought the universe into existence? Well, unless you're willing to say that the universe just popped into being uncaused out of absolutely nothing, there must be a transcendent cause which brought the universe into being. Thus, from premise one, everything that begins to exist has a cause, and two, the universe began to exist, it follows logically that three, therefore, the universe has a cause. Now, as the cause of space and time, this cause must be a timeless, spaceless, immaterial being of unfathomable power. Therefore, it must be personal as well. For the only thing that can fit that description, as we've seen, is an unembodied mind or consciousness. And thus we're brought not merely to a transcendent cause of the universe, but to its personal creator. Number four, the moral argument. If God does not exist, then objective moral values do not exist. By objective moral values, I mean values which are valid and binding whether anyone believes in them or not. And the claim is that in the absence of God, moral values are not objective in that sense. So, premise one, if God does not exist, objective moral values do not exist. Many theists and atheists alike agree with this premise. For example, Michael Roos, an agnostic philosopher of science, explains, the position of the modern evolutionist is that morality is a biological adaptation, no less than our hands and feet and teeth. Considered as a rationally justifiable set of claims about an objective something, evidence is illusory. I appreciate that when somebody says, love thy neighbor as thyself, they think they are referring above and beyond themselves. Nevertheless, such reference is truly without foundation. Morality is just an aid to survival and reproduction, and any deeper meaning is illusory. On a naturalistic view, moral values are just a byproduct of biological evolution and social conditioning. On this view, 
certain actions like rape or incest are not biologically and socially advantageous and so in the course of human development have become taboo. But that does absolutely nothing to prove that rape or incest is morally wrong. This sort of behavior goes on all the time in the animal kingdom. The rapist who chooses to go against the herd morality is doing nothing more serious than acting unfashionably. The behavioral equivalent of Lady Gaga, if you will. <laughs> on a naturalistic view, it's hard to see any reason to think that human morality would be objectively true. But the problem is the premise too, objective values do exist. In moral experience, we apprehend a realm of moral values which impose themselves upon us. There's no more reason to deny the objective reality of moral values than the objective reality of the physical world. Actions like rape, cruelty, and child abuse aren't just socially unacceptable behavior. They're moral abominations. Michael Bruce himself admits, and I quote, the man who says it is morally acceptable to rape little children is just as mistaken as the man who says two plus two equals five. Some things, at least, are really wrong. Similarly, love, equality, and self-sacrifice are really good. But then it follows logically and inescapably that three, therefore, God exists. Number five, the resurrection of Jesus. Historians have reached something of a consensus that Jesus of Nazareth came on the scene with an unheard of authority, the authority to stand and speak in God's place. And his visible demonstrations of this fact, he carried out a ministry of miracles and exorcisms. But the supreme confirmation of his claim was his resurrection from the dead. If Jesus did rise from the dead, then it would seem that we have a divine miracle on our hands and thus evidence for the existence of God. Now, most people would probably think that the resurrection of Jesus is something you just accept by faith or not. But there are actually three established facts which are recognized by the majority of New Testament historians today, which I believe are best explained by the resurrection of Jesus. Fact number one. On the Sunday after his crucifixion, Jesus' tomb was found empty by a group of his women followers. According to Jakob Kramer, an Austrian specialist, by far most scholars hold firmly to the reliability of the biblical statements about the empty tomb. Fact number two, on seven occasions, different individuals and groups saw appearances of Jesus alive after his death. According to the prominent New Testament critic, Gerald Ludemann, it may be taken as historically certain that the disciples had experiences after Jesus' death in which Jesus appeared to them as the risen Christ. These appearances were witnessed not only by believers, but also by unbelievers, skeptics, and even enemies. Fact number three, the original disciples suddenly and sincerely came to believe in the resurrection of Jesus despite every predisposition to the contrary. Jews had no belief in a defeated and dying Messiah, and Jewish beliefs about the afterlife 
precluded anyone's rising from the dead to glory and immortality before the end of the world. Nevertheless, the original disciples came to believe so strongly that God had raised Jesus from the dead that they were willing to die for the truth of that belief. N.T. Wright, an eminent British scholar, concludes, that is why, as a historian, I cannot explain the rise of early Christianity unless Jesus rose again, leaving an empty tomb behind him. Attempts to explain away these three great facts, like the disciples stole the body, or Jesus wasn't really dead, have been universally rejected by contemporary scholarship. The simple fact is that there just is no plausible naturalistic explanation of these facts. And therefore it seems to me that the Christian is amply justified in believing that Jesus rose from the dead and was who he claimed to be. But that entails that God exists. And thus we have a good inductive argument for the existence of God based upon the resurrection of Jesus. Finally, number six, you can experience God personally. This isn't really an argument for God's existence. Rather, it's to claim that you can know that God exists wholly apart from arguments simply by experiencing Him. This was the way that people in the Bible knew God. As Professor John Hick explains, God was known to them as a dynamic will interacting with their own wills, a sheer given reality as inescapably to be reckoned with as a destructive storm and life-giving sunshine. To them, God was not an idea adopted by the mind, but an experienced reality which gave significance to their lives. Now, if this is the case, then there's a danger that arguments for God's existence could actually distract our attention from God himself. If you're sincerely seeking God, that God will make his existence evident to you. The Bible promises, draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. We mustn't so concentrate on the external arguments that we fail to hear the inner voice of God speaking to our own hearts. For those who listen, God becomes a personal reality in their lives. So, in conclusion then, we've seen six reasons to think that God exists. The ontological argument, the contingency argument, the cosmological argument, the moral argument, the argument from Jesus' resurrection, and the personal experience of God. If Dr. Silverman wants us to believe atheism instead, then he must first tear down all six of the reasons for God's existence that I presented, and then in their place erect a case of his own to show that atheism is true. Unless and until he does that, I think we should conclude that theism is the more plausible worldview.
times lost. And here's why. When I've asked them what they meant by God, I've heard things like, God is nature, or God is a potential within, or God is love. Well, I believe in nature, potential, and love, so I guess that made me a believer. However, I'm not ready to concede defeat here because Dr. Craig just spoke quite eloquently about a different kind of God, one I don't believe in. So when we talk about God tonight, I think we can restrict ourselves to Dr. Craig's God, the God of the Bible. It may surprise you to know that Dr. Craig and I are both atheists, with one tiny difference. You see, there are over 7,000 gods that people believe in, and Dr. Craig is an atheist with respect to all gods but one. I just don't make that one exception. So we agree about well over 99.9% .9 of gods. I can't prove there aren't any gods. I just don't find credible evidence for believing. That's also why I don't believe in astrology or alien abduction by UFOs. Now, in this debate, I will counter the evidence that Dr. Craig presented in favor of his god, but I won't prove that his god does not exist. The person making a claim is responsible for providing evidence for it. No disproof is required to reject a claim. For instance, suppose I tell you that the universe was created just 10 minutes ago at 7.19 p.m. and that a supernatural being planted false memories in all of you. You can't disprove it, can you? But you don't believe me. You would rightly want evidence and would examine my evidence very carefully. You would be under no obligation to prove such a supernatural being does not exist. We can't prove that unicorns and leprechauns do not exist, but we still don't believe in them. The burden of proof is on those who assert a belief, not on those who deny it. Now, I'm willing to accept any faith claim Dr. Craig makes as a sincere expression of his personal beliefs and experience. But tonight's discussion is focused on actual evidence. Evidence about what to believe, and evidence about how to conduct our lives based on those beliefs. I know I'm in the minority here in not believing in the Christian God, or any other. So I should at least hypothesize about why so many do believe. I think religion arose out of fear and awe of the wonders of nature, like thunder, eclipses, earthquakes, and floods, which people attributed to acts of the gods. The more we learn about the predictive value of science, the less we need to attribute natural phenomena to supernatural causes. Of course, there will always be mysteries, and we can either look for evidence to resolve them, or simply say, one of the gods did it. Such a response serves only to isolate the problem from rational discussion. Attributing to a god whatever is unknown is called the god of the gaps. That just passes the buck from one mystery to an even bigger mystery. Now, I certainly understand the appeal of religion. Fear of death can lead to a longing for an afterlife where we can be united.
united forever with our loved ones in eternal bliss. Or perhaps we can come back reincarnated as a better person. But it's important to distinguish between the world as we know it and the world as we'd like it to be. Many believe they've had personal experiences with different gods, and that can be quite comforting. But with all the conflicting religious beliefs in the world, how do people choose the one true religion? As it turns out, there's a remarkable coincidence. The overwhelming majority choose the religion of their parents. Religious beliefs are learned, not discovered. I once learned to believe in the biblical God, Yahweh, not Jesus. Why? Because I was born into a Jewish family. Had I been born into a Christian family, I would likely have believed that Jesus is Lord. Most Asians are Buddhists. People from India are mainly Hindus. Saudi Arabians are Muslims. And here in the United States, we have mainly Christians. Religious belief seems to be based more on geography than on theology. With all the conflicting faith beliefs in the world, they can't all be right, but they can all be wrong. Science, on the other hand, doesn't rely on faith in divine revelations or interpretations of ancient books by religious authorities. Science does require a willingness to question assumptions critically and search for evidence until a consensus is reached. That's why scientific truths remain the same in Pakistan, the United States, Israel, or India, though their citizens may have very different religious beliefs. In my rebuttal, I'll specifically address Dr. Clayton's arguments for his God's existence. P.K. gave a couple of empirical arguments, like the origin of the universe and its fine-tuning. He gave a philosophical argument, uh, the ontological argument. He gave a moral and ethical argument that we have objective morality, which can only come from God. He gave what he called a historical argument, the resurrection of Jesus. And he also gave a faith argument, his direct experience. Now, I can understand that Dr. Craig feels that he has experienced Jesus in his heart. But feelings and experiences need not be consistent with reality. Some people believe they've seen and conversed with the Blessed Virgin. Some people can remember past lives. Some people feel they've been kidnapped and had sex with space aliens. Some people have had a variety of psychic experiences. And many have felt the presence of Allah, Vishnu, Shiva, and numerous other gods that neither Dr. Craig nor I believe in. Why should we privilege one religious experience over another? To me, the most important issue Dr. Craig addressed was morality. Because whether we're believers or not, we're all trying to figure out the best and most moral way to conduct our lives. As an atheist, I don't believe in any gods. But that doesn't make me a non-believer. I believe in many things. I believe we can gain knowledge of the world through observation, experimentation, reading, and critical thinking. 
I believe we're part of a natural world, the result of unguided evolutionary change. I believe that ethical values are derived from human needs and interests, and are tested and refined by experience. I believe that morality should be based on how our actions affect others. I believe that our creeds should not be more important than our deeds, and that our dogmas should never override our compassion for others. I don't think we should give credit to a deity for our accomplishments or blame satanic forces when we behave badly. I believe we should take responsibility for our actions. theoretical 
objective morality and not one that we could readily apply to our daily lives. And here's why. Different people today and in past centuries have claimed an objective morality. But these sets of objective morals often contradict one another. They were handed down by different gods or religious authorities, all claiming to have the objective truth with a capital T. And deviations from these so-called objective moralities often had dire consequences for heretics. Should we subscribe to the same beliefs as those writers of the Bible who lived some two to three thousand years ago in a small corner of the Mediterranean world? My answer is yes and no. Some biblical wisdom is certainly worth keeping, like love your neighbor and don't murder, steal, or lie. These practices are necessary for survival of any culture, with or without religion, and are by no means unique to the Bible. Yet I think we need ongoing discussions about moral issues, where we continue to refine our views about how best to minimize human suffering and promote human dignity more effectively. But some believe we should turn back the clock of moral and ethical development and rely exclusively on religious doctrines written thousands of years ago when democracy was non-existent and religious leaders or kings ruled by divine right. And that we're supposed to rely on religious leaders to interpret these so-called infallible holy books. Such leaders include Islamic fundamentalists who are proponents of Sharia law and Christian reconstructionists who want our country to be governed according to their strict interpretation of biblical law. But our morality today differs significantly in many ways from biblical morality. And that's a good thing. Throughout history, the Bible has been quoted to justify all kinds of atrocities. Some actions that were deemed moral 2,000 years ago are considered immoral today. Morality evolves over time as our understanding of human needs within a culture changes. Even those who believe in biblical inerrancy now interpret some passages in a different way today than in centuries past, in a manner more consistent with many secular humanist principles. This shows that we have independent human notions of morality that do not come from the God of the Bible. We make judgments about which portions of the sacred text to take literally, which to take metaphorically, and which to ignore completely. Christians who claim to have the one true universal morality can't seem to agree on what it is. The same occurs within other religions. Associating God with morality can be very problematic, especially for those who view this life as just a prelude to an afterlife. But to put love of a God above love of human beings is just immoral. Reasonable people may disagree on the right thing to do in a given situation, but there is no reason to imagine that a supernatural belief system based on what you think a God wants can offer anything over a secular morality based on reason and compassion. I think a good rule of thumb for how to conduct one's life comes from Abraham Lincoln. When I do good, I 
feel good. When I do bad, I feel bad. That is my religion. Dr. Craig says that we need his guide to convince us that rape and child abuse are morally wrong. On the contrary, if I were looking to justify such obvious brutalities, I could turn to the Bible. Do you know what the penalty is in Deuteronomy for raping an unmarried woman? The rapist must pay her father 50 shekels because she's become his damaged property. And the rapist must then marry her. How would you women feel if you were told to marry your rapist? And in Numbers 31, God orders his invading army to kill all male children and women who have known man, but to keep for themselves the young girls who are virgins. In 1 Timothy, we hear that slaves must obey their masters, and Luke tells us when it is permissible to beat our slaves. Nowhere in the Bible is slavery called an abomination. Now, I hope none of you students have ever been stubborn or rebellious toward your parents. But if you had been, you wouldn't be here today if your parents followed biblical morality. According to Deuteronomy 21.18, you should have been stoned to death. Sometimes the nicest thing you can say about God is that he does not exist. <laughs> One biblical character, Abraham, is revered as a prophet in all three monotheistic religions. Judaism, Christianity, and Islam. He is admired for having such great faith that he was willing to kill his son because God told him to do it. I don't think Dr. Craig is a man of this much faith. Or at least I hope he's not. But just to make sure, I'll close by asking Dr. Craig this question. If God commanded you to kill a member of your family, or to kill me, would you do it? And depending on your answer, I might move a bit farther away from you.
Now, certainly that's true, but what he fails to understand is that atheism makes a claim. Atheism is the claim that God does not exist. Don't take my word for it. The Encyclopedia of Philosophy, a standard reference work, says, according to the most usual definition, an atheist is a person who maintains that there is no God. That is, that the sentence, God exists, expresses a false proposition. In contrast, an agnostic maintains that it is not known or cannot be known whether there is a God. What Dr. Silkman is really defending is agnosticism, not atheism. Atheism makes a claim that there is no God, and therefore it has a burden of proof just as much as the claim that there is a God. So it's not enough for him to simply refute the arguments for God's existence. This is recognized by thoughtful atheists, for example, Austin Dacey and Louis Vaughn in their book, The Case for Humanism Right. What if these arguments purporting to establish that God exists are failures? Must we then conclude that God does not exist? No. Lack of supporting reasons or evidence for a proposition does not show that the proposition is false. So I invite Dr. Silverman to come again and give us his reasons for thinking that the proposition that God exists is false, for thinking that God does not exist. In contrast to what he had to say, I think we've got good reasons for thinking that unicorns and leprechauns don't exist, but I'd like to hear some good reasons for thinking that God does not exist. Finally, the third point that he made in support of atheism was to ask about the origins of belief in God, and he suggested it has origins in primitive societies and that people adopt in general the religion of their parents and their culture. This commits, ladies and gentlemen, what's known as the genetic fallacy. The genetic fallacy is attempting to invalidate or falsify a view by showing how the view originated. And that is clearly a philosophical fallacy. If you had been born in ancient Mesopotamia, you probably would have believed that the earth is flat. But does that mean that your belief that the earth is spherical is therefore unjustified or uh, unwarranted? Well, obviously not at all. The fact that uh, religious beliefs have their origins in cultures and societies does nothing to show that those beliefs are false. In order to do that, you must engage with the evidence. So basically, what we've heard tonight in that opening speech is no justification whatsoever for a negative answer to the question that we're discussing this evening, does God exist? Now, I presented six arguments for God's existence, the ontological argument, the contingency argument, the cosmological argument, the moral argument, the resurrection of Jesus, and personal experience. Dr. Silverman didn't respond to the first uh, three arguments, but he does have something to say about the moral argument. Now, you remember the first premise of the moral argument was if God does not exist, objective moral values do not exist. And did you notice that Dr. Silverman agrees with that premise? He said that moral values are a necessary invention of human beings. He says all we have to do is go with what works well. That's exactly the view that I explained. Moral values, the herd morality, works well. It's guaranteed to work well by natural selection. Natural selection has created this sort of herd morality in the human species because it's advantageous in the struggle for survival. But there's nothing about that that makes it valid and binding. I then turn to the second premise that objective moral values do exist. And here, inconsistently, Dr. Silverman agrees with this as well. He says we can all agree that murder is wrong. But you can agree with that if you agree with the first.
first premise that in the absence of God, there are no objective moral values. Look at what happens in the animal kingdom. Richard Taylor, uh, an eminent ethicist, says, uh, he asked us to imagine what would happen about people living in a state of nature where one person steals another's goods and kills him. He says, such actions, though injurious to their victims, are no more unjust or immoral than they would be if done by one animal to another. A hawk that seizes a fish from the sea kills it, but it does not murder it. And another hawk that seizes the fish from the talons of the first takes it, but does not steal it. For none of these things is forbidden. And exactly the same considerations apply to the people we are imagining. In a state of nature, whatever is, is right, and moral values are simply the socio-relative byproducts of biological and social evolution. The problem is, I think, that that sort of view is simply unconscionable. The fact is that objective moral values and duties, I think, do exist. John Healy, who was the director of Amnesty International, in a fundraising letter wrote this, I am writing to you today because I think you share my profound belief that there are indeed some moral absolutes when it comes to torture, to government-sanctioned murder, to disappearances, there are no lesser evils. These are outrages against all of us. I recently read a fascinating article in the Duke Law Journal by Arthur Allen Leff called Unspeakable Ethics, Unnatural Law. And what Leff is trying to find is a foundation, a non-arbitrary foundation for law and values if God does not exist. And what he argues is that if God does not exist in any attempt to at ground values, is open to the playground retort, says who? And this is the remarkable conclusion to this article. This is what he concludes. All I can say is this. It looks as if we are all we have. Only if ethics were something unspeakable by us could law be unnatural and therefore unchallengeable. As things now stand, everything is up for grabs. Nevertheless, napalming babies is bad. Starving the poor is wicked. Buying and selling each other is depraved. There is in the world such a thing as evil. Altogether now, says who? God help us. And that's the end of the article. <laughs> Clearly, in the absence of God, we are stuck in a world of moral nihilism in which none of those things can be condemned as morally evil. And yet I think all of us intuitively recognize the evil of those sorts of actions from which it follows logically and necessarily that God exists. Now, Dr. Silverman raises a number of interesting questions about how do we know the content of objective values? How do we apply them in our lives? But that's not the topic in tonight's debate. Those are questions of moral epistemology. How do we come to know the good? Mine is a question of moral ontology. What is the foundation of the good in reality? We can talk at some other time about how we come to know the good. And there, uh, philosophers have means of doing this. For example, Walter Senate Armstrong, an ethicist from Dartmouth, says the most common way to choose among moral theories is to test how well they cohere with our intuitions or considered judgments about what is morally right and wrong about the nature or ideal of a person and about the purposes of morality. But that's not the question this evening. Before we can ask those questions, we need to ask more fundamental questions. Are there objective moral values? And I think that in the absence of God, Dr. Silverman agrees that they do not exist. Similarly, 
The points he raises about Old Testament laws and regulations, I think many of these were taken out of context, especially what he said about Luke. But in any case, they're irrelevant in tonight's debate. What would that prove, even if he were right? Would that prove that if God does not exist, objective moral values do not exist? Well, obviously not. Many atheists, he himself agrees with that first premise, regardless of Bible stories. Would it prove that the second premise, that objective values exist, is false? No, it would do nothing to disprove that. In fact, the whole point is, he says, we can see that it's objectively wrong to permit slavery and so forth. So what is this argument really relevant to? Well, what it's relevant to is it's a challenge to biblical inerrancy. It's an attack upon the claim that these Old Testament laws are really revealed by God. And that's not the subject of tonight's debate. I'm not interested in defending or talking about biblical inerrancy. Rather, what I'm arguing is that if we are to have a sound moral foundation for the values that we all recognize and hold here, then we must have a transcendent foundation that transcends culture, society, and evolution. Otherwise, we are left with moral nihilism. Fifth, he didn't dispute the argument about the resurrection of Jesus. Finally, what about personal experience? All he said here is that sometimes experiences can be in conflict with reality. Well, of course they can sometimes, but that's no reason to think that they are. Unless you have a defeater, a reason for thinking that your experience is delusory, you're perfectly rational to go on believing in what your experience tells you. His own example about the reality of the past illustrates that. You cannot prove the past wasn't created 10 minutes ago with built-in appearances of age. But in the absence of any defeater for your experience of the reality of the past, you're rational to believe in it. Similarly here, God is real to me. He changed my life. I am rational in believing in the existence of God unless and until Dr. Silverman can give us a defeater for that claim. Defeaters which have been noticeably absent in tonight's debate, as we've heard no good arguments for atheism uh, so far this evening. So, uh, in sum, it seems to me that we've not heard any good arguments for atheism. We still have six very strong arguments for theism, and therefore I think that theism is the more plausible worldview. Meaning that the universe repeatedly collapsed. 
for which I find no evidence. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Dr. Craig says that the universe is too complex to just exist. So it must have been created by an even more complex God who just exists. But everything, but if everything has a cause, then God must have one too. And if something does not, it might as well be the universe. The French mathematician and astronomer Laplace did groundbreaking work in proving the stability of the solar system. The Emperor Napoleon asked Laplace why he did not mention a creator, and Laplace said, I have no need for that hypothesis. I expect that one day we will have a complete understanding of the universe, and a future Laplace will explain to a future Napoleon why the origin of the universe needed no God hypothesis. A hundred years ago, Dr. Craig would have said that God lives outside time. But since the theory of relativity showed that time and space are interchangeable, he now would say that God lives outside of time and space. Who knows where God will be living in another hundred years? Notice I did not say God knows, which generally is a synonym for I don't know. Placing God outside time and space seems to prevent God from having any sort of a divine intervention in worldly affairs. Since God is changeless, he can't change from being outside time to being inside. Actually, I take this back since you can say anything you want about a God, but saying something doesn't make it true. There is a designer for life on earth, but it's not intelligent and it certainly doesn't need to be worshipped. Its name is evolution. Evolution is not a random process. Variation among organisms comes through mutations sorted by natural selection, where those with the highest number and quality of offspring will survive each generation. That's why natural selection explains the diversity of life so well. Natural selection breaks improbability into small pieces with slowly increasing complexity. This creates, creates the illusion of a planned design which could not be achieved in a single step. But what's impossible in 100 years may be inevitable in a billion years. We evolve to fit in our tiny spot of the universe. That's why we have oxygen-breathing animals on a planet with lots of oxygen, sun-dependent plants on a sunny planet, and creatures with fins and gills on a planet with lots of water. The interaction between our environment and life on Earth over billions of years has resulted in a workable fit, though it's far from perfect, as an extinction rate of more than 98% shows. Humans are designed imperfectly, which you would expect more from nature than from a loving God. Life is fine-tuned to live on Earth, and it was evolution that did the tuning. Natural selection is a well-confirmed explanation for life's complexity. God did it, is not. As for morality, uh, Dr. Craig seems to have gone back from the 
he still maintains there's an objective morality. And I said, I don't know really if there is or not. I know we learned from our experience, and he and I agree uh, that evolution plays a considerable role in uh, how we uh, improve in our way of acting in moral ways. Uh, for instance, even with uh, chimpanzees, uh, there are, they now are, we think, shaped in their behavior as much as in, with their uh, eyeballs. Uh, and individuals, for instance, among chimpanzees who share food and as a result have more food shared with them are likely to outreproduce those who care only about themselves. And then after a sufficient number of generations, species might become genetically programmed to share. Natural selection may not have specified uh, uh, moral rules and values, but it could have provided us with a psychological makeup that takes the interests of the entire community into account, which is the essence of human morality. Now, uh, Dr. Craig gave an ontological argument that he can conceive of a God, and therefore, God must exist. Well, I can conceive of a unicorn, but that doesn't mean that a unicorn exists. We could use this line of reasoning to prove that any figment of our imagination exists. In fact, I can conceive of a largest negative number and still prove that none exists. Just divide the number by two and you get a larger negative number. So I can conceive of something that I can actually prove does not exist. And I can, see, can conceive of many gods, but that doesn't mean that any of them exist. Now, about the belief in the resurrection of Jesus, resurrection stories were popular at the time of Jesus, associating Jesus with previously resurrected gods like Osiris and Romulus would not have been difficult. It's common for a new religious movement to adapt the current ideas to suit the new religion. So one of the most effective ways for Christians to convert others would have been to convince them that Jesus was also raised from the dead. Not one sentence in the New Testament was written by anyone who had met Jesus. The Gospels were written 35 to 65 years after his death, and the stories disagree on essential details, including the number of angels or people present at the empty tomb and the sequence of events. Such testimony would be thrown out of any court by today's legal standards. One may accept such stories on faith, but I see no credible evidence to believe that the gospel truth is true. Further, there is no independent confirmation of the resurrection from non-biblical sources, not from pagan or Jewish writers of that era. And Jesus wasn't the only New Testament figure to rise from the grave around that time. According to Matthew 27, graves were opened and lots of Jews were resurrected and went to Jerusalem, where they were seen by many other people. Again, there are no sources outside the Bible to confirm this event. We would have expected to hear something from the resurrected and their relatives, like 
Christ's life being dead, how long they stayed in Jerusalem, and whether they returned to their graves. These are things that inquiring minds would have wanted to know. A more likely explanation is that early Christians simply invented resurrection stories to conform to previous religious beliefs. With billions of non-Christians in the world, why wouldn't a merciful God who wants all humans to be saved not provide clear information and evidence for his resurrection when this belief is supposedly necessary for salvation? Why didn't Jesus appear more prominently after his death instead of mainly to his small band of followers? Dr. Craig cites New Testament scholars who claim the physical resurrection of Jesus was an historical event. But these New Testament scholars are religious believers, not historians. According to Alan Siegel, professor of religion at Barnard College, secular historians cannot find any credible evidence for a resurrection. The Society of Biblical Literature is the primary organization for biblical studies in North America. And members have shown concern about much of the New Testament scholarship that comes from theologians who start with preconceived conclusions and accept only evidence that confirms their biases. James Crossley, in his groundbreaking book, Why Christianity Happened, gives a socio-historical account of Christian origins and argues forcefully for an interdisciplinary approach that also includes anthropology, geography, and economics. Otherwise, he concludes, quote, New Testament studies will retain its dubious academic status as being nothing more than the pious scholarly wings of the Christian churches, with their scholars often plying their trade in secular universities. I can't quite see. How much time do I have? Okay, well, I, I think my time might just about be up, so I'll end with a two-word response to Dr. Craig's argument that the resurrection must be true because the disciples were willing to die for their beliefs. 9-11.
and says you can conceive of anything that doesn't mean that it exists. Right, that you can't. It has to be something that would be metaphysically necessary. And the idea of a metaphysically necessary unicorn is logically incoherent. His example of a largest negative number is my perfect illustration for my point. A largest negative number is in, impossible. It is logically impossible. So that if such a thing were possible, it would exist necessarily because numbers exist in every possible world. But it's not possible. It's incoherent. He has to maintain that God is like a largest negative number, that it's logically incoherent. But it's not. It's a perfectly coherent idea from which it follows that if God's existence is possible, then like numbers, he will exist in every possible world and therefore exist necessarily. What about the contingency argument? Here, there was no response to the contingency argument that everything that exists has an explanation, either in the necessity of its own nature or in an external cause, and that this leads to a transcendent personal cause of the universe. I think the reason he didn't reply to the contingency argument is that he confused it with my third argument, the cosmological argument, based on the beginning of the universe. And here he attacked the premise that everything that begins to exist has a cause by saying in quantum physics, things uh, do not have causes on the subatomic level. That's simply uh, not true. Things do not come out of nothing on the quantum level. They come from the quantum vacuum, which is a roiling sea of energy governed by physical laws and having a rich physical structure. It is not something coming to being with no cause at all. Robert Del Tet, philosopher of science, writes, there is no physical basis in ordinary quantum theory for the claim that the universe itself is uncaused, much less for the claim that it sprang into being uncaused from literally nothing. If that's the alternative to atheism, or to theism, then atheists, I think, require more faith to believe that the universe was popped into being out of nothing than that it had a cause. He says, but then God would need a cause if everything has to have a cause. No, the premise was everything that begins to exist has to have a cause. Anything that comes into being needs to have a cause that actualizes it. Something that is eternal uh, doesn't need a cause. And that's what, of course, the atheist has always said about matter and energy, space and time. They're eternal. But now, in light of modern cosmology, that's untenable. The universe began to exist. Or did it? He says, but what about the multiverse? What about cyclical models of the universe? These are ruled out as extrapolable to past infinity by the Borg-Guth-Vilenkin theorem, which was enunciated in 2003. According to that theorem, any universe which is on average in a state of expansion must have a, a space-time boundary in the past. Here's what Vilenkin writes. It is said that an argument is what convinces reasonable men, and a proof is what it takes to convince even an unreasonable man. With the proof now in place, Cosmologists can no longer hide behind the possibility of a past eternal universe. They have to face the problem of a cosmic beginning. Even a multiverse, even a cyclical model, cannot be extrapolated to past infinity, but must have an absolute beginning. And therefore, there must be a transcendent cause of the universe. What about the moral argument? Here, he basically agrees with me that human morality is just like the behavior you see evolved in chimps. And that is not objective. That's not valid and binding on us. That's just a herd morality that's built into us by uh, evolution. But I submit to you that, in fact, that is a completely false view of moral values, that certain things like child abuse, rape, 
uh, cruelty are really wrong. And I think Dr. Silverman uh, and the better angels of his nature knows that. Uh, and that therefore we require God as a ground of moral values. I can't see the time card. Perhaps you could come forward into the light. What about the resurrection uh, of Jesus? He raises a... <laughs>
except that she promoted slavery because that's all she heard in sermons from her minister. Now, I think that Dr. Craig does agree with me that morality evolves. We learn what works best for our culture and it continues to change. There were times, and perhaps even today, there are some locations where they think slavery is perfectly legitimate. Hopefully, that will be gone totally from uh, our uh, species in, in a few years. But we both agree, I think, that morality evolves over time and that uh, that's a good thing and that we shouldn't just base our morality on uh, ancient books. And just a comment about the resurrection, uh, forget just about arguments between current historians. We can talk about uh, near the time of Jesus what even some of the Christians were saying at the time. There was a, a documented conversation between Celsus and Origen about 100 years after Jesus died. When Celsus, a Greek, said to Origen, if you Christians believe Jesus' miracles, his miraculous birth, and his being raised from the dead and ascending into heaven, why do you refuse to believe the same stories of our other savior gods, like Heracles, Dionysus, and a dozen others? Because Celsus was offended that Christians claimed this only for Jesus, when it appeared obvious that uh, he borrowed it from other gods in the Roman Empire with similar beliefs. Now, you can believe that that was uh, the only time that that ever occurred. I choose to believe that that never occurred. Uh, it was just an adaptation from earlier beliefs. Now, I doubt that uh, Dr. Craig would agree with fellow Christian Pat Robertson that the catastrophic earthquake in Haiti was some form of divine punishment for past sins. But in terms of the problem for evil that he mentioned, I do suspect that Dr. Craig believes that the earthquake was part of a divine plan, just as the Holocaust was. Uh, he does not deny the existence of evil, as some Christians do, like Christian scientists. In fact, he claims that the existence of evil is somehow proof of his God's existence and that his God created the best possible world. That God then supposedly created humans who, knew, uh, who he knew would become miserable sinners. And God knew that a small minority would be redeemed by worshiping him in just the right way. And he also knew that the overwhelming majority would be tortured eternally in hell. And hell is also a sign that God is perfectly merciful and just. Well, that doesn't fit into my concept of a perfect and loving being. If we say we don't understand why such a God acts as he does, that he is beyond human understanding, then I don't see how we can make any claim about him or his existence. We simply have no evidence for a good God. And speaking of evidence, since that's what this debate is supposed to be about, I'm puzzled by Dr. Craig's assertion on page 37 of his book, Reasonable Faith, where he says, even if there's no evidence for the truth of the Bible, even
I'm happy to change my positions based on the available evidence. Faith is a belief without it, with an absence of evidence. Science requires the presence of evidence. If the data conflict with the scientific proposition, we throw out the proposition. If the data disagree with the faith belief, then believers often throw out the data. Mark Twain said, faith is believing what you know ain't so. Which brings me back to stories about Jesus, and which were not unique at the time. There were many so-called miracle workers around the time of Jesus, including first century figure Apollonius of Tiana, whose life parallels that of Jesus. The idea of a human divine figure was quite common. Even the same Greek terms were used prior to the New Testament, like Savior, uh, Gospel, and many others. Early Christians, like Justin Martyr, acknowledged that basic Christian doctrines, like God's having virgin births, performing miracles, crucified, raised from the dead, ascending to heaven, were in earlier Greco-Roman religions. The best explanation they could offer was that such stories came from demons and were false, while the same beliefs in Christianity were true. The belief that Satan placed these stories with other cultures and religions to confound later Christians became known as diabolical mimicry. John Dominic Crossan is a believing Christian and chair of the historical Jesus section of the Society of Biblical Literature. In his book, The Historical Jesus, he provides evidence that many viewed the bodily resurrection of Jesus as a metaphorical parable about the meaning of Jesus' life and death, and not an historical about, uh, account about the status of Jesus' corpse and tomb. Crossan, as well as many other Christians, does not be believe there was ever a bodily resurrection. For a still different Christian view, did you know that after Jesus died, but before he went to heaven, Jesus stopped in the United States? We know this because the story was chiseled on gold plates and buried in Palmyra, New York. In 1827, the angel Moroni led Joseph Smith to the gold plates and a magic stone. When Smith put the magic stone into his hat and buried his face in the hat, he was able to translate the gold plates from Egyptian hieroglyphics into English. Now, does the rise and growth of Mormonism mean that the Book of Mormon is true? Mormons say they are Christians. Do you think they are? And do you believe this story? Can you disprove it? All the competing and contradictory claims for thousands of gods by billions of people throughout history only says one thing. We are capable of believing just about anything. Most believers are hoping to achieve some form of eternal bliss. And for those who, like Dr. Craig, believe in a traditional Christian concept of heaven and hell, here are just some final questions for you to think about. Will you really be happy in heaven, knowing that some of your loved ones are suffering in hell? Does it seem moral to sentence people to eternal damnation because they followed the religious traditions of their families or because of a mistake in theology? If you have free will in heaven, can you sin there and go to hell? If you don't have 
perhaps because of my mathematical bent. Some of these students may have taken pass-fail courses. Since heaven-hell is the ultimate pass-fail test, how much better can the worst person in heaven be than the best person in hell? And I won't accept as a correct answer, God knows. Which view, which 
worldview offers us a sound foundation for objective moral values. Theism is the only one in tonight's debate that has done that. What about the resurrection of Jesus? He says, how is the resurrection of Jesus different from these other myths uh, like those appealed to by Celsus? Namely, because Jesus of Nazareth was a historical figure that you can read about in texts outside the New Testament. These other mythological deities were just seasonal symbols for the crop cycle. You've probably all heard of Bart Ehrman, who's the uh, chairman of the Religious Studies Department at UNC and a, an atheist. What does Ehrman have to say about the empty tomb? I quote, he says, there are a couple of things we can say for certain about Jesus after his death. We can say with relative certainty, for example, that he was buried. We also have solid traditions to indicate that women found this tomb empty three days later. This is attested in all the gospel sources early and late, and so it appears to be a historical datum. So I think we can say that after Jesus' death, with some certainty, he was buried by this fellow Joseph of Arimathea, and that three days later, he appeared not to have been in the tomb. Even someone like Mark Ehrman believes in the empty tomb of Jesus. This is not the conclusion merely of conservative or partisan scholars. He says, what about Apollonius of Tyana? He's a parallel. Apollonius of Tyana is described by Philostratus in the third century after Christ. He was a deliberate construct by Philostratus to uh, be a competitor to Jesus Christ because Christianity was growing in the empire. So this doesn't represent an independent parallel. As for John Dominic Crossan's claim that the resurrection is a metaphor, Crossan is a postmodernist who doesn't even believe that God exists. He's not a Christian theologian. Look at my debate with Crossan uh, called Will the Real Jesus Please Stand Up, uh, which is the debate I have with Crossan on this subject. N.T. Wright, at the conclusion of his massive study of the resurrection, says this, The empty tomb and appearances have a historical probability so high as to be virtually certain like the death of Augustus in A.D. 14, or the fall of Jerusalem in A.D. 70. That is the way objective the majority of historical scholars assess the evidence for the resurrection, and that implies, I think, that God exists. Finally, in conclusion, the personal experience of God. Uh, he says, well, you, you say you can know that God exists without any arguments, and that's irrational. Not at all. I'm saying that on the basis of personal experience, in the absence of some reason to think that that experience is delusory, I'm perfectly rational in believing in God on the basis of his reality in my life. And I believe this is a reality that you can find as well if you will seek for him with an open mind and with an open heart. Thank you. Thank you. 
God by nature is loving, kind, fair, compassionate, just, and so forth. And it is his nature that determines what is good. And so objective moral values are rooted in the very essential nature of God himself. This nature then expresses itself toward us in the form of divine commandments, which then constitute our moral duties. So our duties are based upon God's commandments, but those commandments are not arbitrary. They are necessary reflections of God's essential nature, which is definitive of the good. You have one minute. Well, uh, again, it sounds to me like saying God is good, so whatever happens, happens. He probably willed to Holocaust if he told you to kill someone just like he told Abraham, that would also be acceptable. Well, I would rather hit my morals against the morals that people think their gods tell them uh, to perform, and especially when there are in ancient books that are outmoded. And uh, Dr. Craig mentioned the commandments. Well, even the tenth commandment among the, the top ten are don't covet your neighbor's wife, slaves, oxen, and any other property of your neighbor. Now, uh, this was at a time when wives and slaves were legitimate property that you should not covet of your neighbors. Well, that's, we've evolved past that, and I don't want to go along with the supposed God's commandments of that sort. Thank you. All right, our next question will come from Dr. Silverman's microphone. Uh, hello, my name is uh, Joe. I just had a quick question, um, which I didn't want to be quick. Um, what is, because that's why I came here tonight, was to hear the two sides, but if I were to meet you on the street, um, because I don't feel I got a definitive answer, first of all, are you an atheist or an agnostic, and why are you what you are not? Why am I not a Christian, or not a Buddhist, or not this, but why are you one of those two specifically? What would you tell me if I... Teach me how to do what you do. Okay, thank you. Okay, well, I used to be an, an agnostic, and then I converted. I didn't have any metaphysical change. I just heard a different definition. I used to think, as a mathematician, I can't prove whether there is or God in a, in a mathematical way, so I called myself an atheist. When I started hearing what atheists define themselves to be as someone without a belief in any gods, then I said, okay, I'm an atheist. Uh, just like we can't believe in the existence of many different gods, but to me, I think of myself as more as evidence-based. I accept things for which I have sufficient evidence, otherwise I don't accept them, and I look for ethical and moral ways to live my life, uh, and that to me is more important than just this philosophical issue about whether there's a God. Uh, even if there were, it would not be a God that I, would tell me how I should behave. I could look at one ancient book, I could look at many other ancient books, and I think, hey, these books were written by people uh, who thought there was a flat earth with the, the earth standing still and the sun rotating around the sun, and one day having the sun stop so that uh, Joshua could kill the inhabitants of the city. I could uh, try to make sense of that, or I can just say, I'm an atheist without believing in any gods. I can call myself an agnostic in saying I don't know, but I also can call myself a humanist uh, who can 
religious beliefs are. One minute to respond. Uh, atheism is just as much a claim as is theism. Theism is the claim God exists. Atheism is the claim God does not exist. And therefore, anyone who makes a claim has a burden of proof to support their claim. And the reason that atheists retreat to this position of saying, well, it's just the absence of belief in God, is because they can't shoulder their share of the burden of proof. They don't have any good arguments for atheism. But atheism is not simply the absence of God belief. What that turns atheism into is a psychological state. It's just a psychological state. And as such, it's neither true nor false. It makes no claims. It's nothing. Uh, and it's a psychological state, as I say, that characterizes babies and even pets. So that trivializes atheism, quite honestly. We're here not to talk about a triviality. We're here to talk about, is there a God? Does God exist or does he not exist? And uh, a serious atheist will give some good arguments to think that God does not exist. All right, we have another question. Um, I was confused as to, in, you, in the ontological argument, you yes. said that God was all-powerful and all-good. Yes. Uh, in the objective moral value argument, you said that uh, there is a set moral code for everyone that is true. Well, I didn't say that. What I said was that if God does not exist, then objective moral values do not exist. So, if objective moral values exist, which are truths that everyone agrees with, like killing is wrong. No, not, they're not truths that everyone might agree with. As I said, to say they're objective means that they are valid and binding independently of whether anybody believes in them or not. If the, if the Holocaust is objectively wrong, then it would still be wrong, even if the Nazis won World War II, and brainwashed or exterminated everybody who disagreed with them so that everybody thought the Holocaust was good. That's what I mean by objective. It's, it's independent of what people think. So slavery in the Bible. Okay, wait a minute, wait a minute. We, we can't get into that kind of format where it's a dialogue. Okay. Well, I, I interrupted him, so let him just ask his question then, and, and, and I'll give an answer. All right, so slavery in the Bible is said to be uh, acceptable. Slavery currently is no longer acceptable. It's seen as a objectively morally wrong thing to do. So, if objective moral values could change, would they not be constant, and therefore God not all-powerful, because he cannot be Not at all. You see, as I explained in the debate, this is an attack not upon God as a, the foundation for objective morality. It doesn't challenge either of the two premises of the argument. This is an attack upon biblical inerrancy. It's saying the ancient Israelites got it wrong when they thought that slavery was something commanded by God, that somehow they thought this was God's command and it really wasn't or something. And that's not the subject of the debate tonight. Now, there have been a lot of things written about slavery in ancient Israel, how different it was from slavery in the American South. It, it almost deserves a different word. It was an economic stratum in those days. It was not uh, something that was uh, involuntary. It wasn't like what happened in the American South. But in any case, that's all irrelevant, and I don't want to go down those rabbit trails because it doesn't have any impact upon either premise in the moral argument that if God doesn't exist, there are no objective moral values. Dr. Silverman agrees with that. But secondly, there are objective moral values. If you think slavery is really objectively wrong, then you agree with that second premise. And, and so that, that implies that God exists. And then the question of, well, has God revealed himself in the Bible? Is the Bible inerrant? 
Did they have, make some mistakes? Those are subsequent questions that can be discussed later. But this does nothing to undermine the moral argument. And to think that it does, frankly, is just rhetoric and demagoguery. Well, if uh, you think that the Bible is not inerrant, uh, that slavery is correct, that's one thing. But if you still don't think the Bible is the inerrant word of God, I think you should at least resign from the executive committee of the Evangelical Philosophical Society, uh, where you were to sign a note, quote, the Bible in its entirety is the inerrant word of Is this herd morality that we have as homo sapiens something that's real? 
uh, or are human, other human beings just to be used as ends to, or as means to my ends? On atheism, you have a view, of, of a worldview in which moral nihilism exists and values like compassion and love that I think we both want to affirm have no objective status. So this, the, the horror of this sort of a morally neutral world, I don't think those of you who applauded that point understand it. It means there's nothing the matter with Auschwitz. That Auschwitz is fine. Our world is Auschwitz. A morally neutral, valueless place. So truly, the, the ethical implications of atheism, I think, are very sobering and, and do need to be weighed seriously. Next question. I'm, uh, I'm glad you mentioned the ethical issue because uh, if you are saying, as you've claimed several times, that uh, moral nihilism is, is implicit in atheism, yes. then I'd like you to demonstrate by the lives of Christians versus atheists that we are less moral people, that we are less kind, that we are less loving, and if that is not the case, then perhaps you could explain why education and instinct, exactly what humanists claim are the basis for morality, why that is not so. Okay, it is because God exists that human beings do have objective moral value and we have an instinctive grasp of moral values and duties. They impose themselves upon us, so we have an instinctive grasp that loving one another is good, that it's, it's wrong to use another person, that child abuse and hatred are, are vices, not virtues. Remember, my argument isn't about moral epistemology, it's about ontology. So what I'm saying is, that, that I, as a, a theist, can offer you a, a foundation for the moral values that you and I both hold dear and want to guide our lives by. Whereas, as an atheist, you have nothing to ground those values. I, They're I, just I, I gave you, there. I gave you two. We have upbringing. We have. Yeah, but those aren't valid and binding. See, those. The, if, you're, if you're brought up under different conditions, you'll have different values. As are religious people brought up under Okay, wait a minute. We can't, we can't get into dialogues because we've got a lot of questions to deal with, and he's got a time on that. So just, I'm afraid we'll just have to deal with his response to the question. Thanks. I thought I responded already, so I'm ready to let that. Did you want to have a one minute rebuttal? Uh, yes, I did. As uh, a Jew who has had relatives die in the Holocaust, I can't stand the part where you're saying that we're such a relativist universe that without God, anything goes. First of all, with the Nazis, they were God with us, God is with us on their belt buckles. About half were Calvinists, about half were Catholics, and they utilized some of the anti-Semitism they got from their objective in the Bible, uh, like uh, quotes from uh, Matthew, the blood of Jesus will be on all Jews and on their children. And where John says, uh, tells us that the devil is the father of the Jews. Now I know you can rationalize it and put it in a different context, but a lot of harm has come from the biblical objective morality. And I would rather look more carefully about what works best Next question over here. This has been great. Thank you very much for coming along. Um, I've been very curious about why God and religion exist. And I've wondered if it's for biological reasons. 
increases as herd animals with uh, a need for an alpha over time, you know, has God essentially become that alpha that we have sought, you know, only God knows. Thank you. Well, yeah, I read an interesting book called The, the God Gene, and it does indicate that there might be uh, some evolutionary aspects to belief in God, in that people uh, work together sometimes to kill off uh, people in another tribe and were willing to die for it. So perhaps there is an, an evolutionary component to that, that humans are a pattern-seeking animal and see patterns even where none may exist, and also that wish fulfillment that they don't want this life to be the only life there is and have a belief in some form of afterlife which could come in a variety of different religions but still want to feel that this is not all there is. Now this is a, a nice thought, but wishing these nice, nice thoughts doesn't make it so and I'd rather base myself more on reality, what I see around me what I see for evidence, and just because I have no evidence for a God, but I can't prove there isn't one, doesn't make me a believer. Uh, if so, what God would I believe in, and how would that make a difference in how I conduct my life? Of course, the debate tonight hasn't been about how did belief in God originate. The, the question is, does God exist? But with respect to the origin of belief in God, uh, there's a variety of theories. Some uh, neurologists think that belief in God may actually be hardwired into the human brain, uh, just as it's hardwired into the brain to believe that when objects disappear behind a screen, they don't cease to exist, but they're still back there, and when they reappear again, it has existed continuously while it was out of sight. That seems to be hardwired into the brains of even infants, and similarly belief in God may be hardwired into the human uh, brain. Or it may be simply a quest for transcendence. I think there's sort of a natural, reflective question when one looks at the universe about ourselves and say, where did it all come from? There must be an explanation for why all this exists, rather than just nothing. And that, I think, lies at the root of the contingency argument that I shared tonight. So uh, it's a result, I think, also of philosophical reflection. Right, we're here. Yeah, um, one of your points was about personal experience. Yes. Can you elaborate on how you came to know uh, Jesus and what difference does that make in your life? Uh, sure. I wasn't raised in a Christian home uh, or even a church-going family. But when I became a teenager, I began to ask the big questions in life. What's the meaning of my existence? Why am I here? Uh, what's the purpose of life? And uh, in the search for answers, I began to attend a church. But instead of answers, all I found was a sort of social country club where the dues were a dollar a week in the offering plate. And the other students, which pretended to be such good Christians on Sunday, lived for their real God the rest of the week, which was popularity. And this really bothered me because I thought, here I am so empty inside spiritually, but I'm living a better life than they are. They're all just a pack of hypocrites. And that really turned me off toward the institutional church. And I began to grow very bitter and alienated toward people in general. Everybody, I thought, is a hypocrite. They're all fakes, pretending to be something they're not. And I was on my way toward becoming, frankly, a very alienated young man. 
And then I walked into my German class one day and I sat down behind a girl who's one of these types that is always so happy, it just makes you sick. And I asked her, I said, Sandy, what are you so happy about all the time anyway? And she said, well, Bill, it's because I'm saved. And I said, well, what? And she said, I know Christ is my personal savior. And I said, well, I go to church. And she said, that's not enough, Bill. You've got to have him living in your heart. And I said, well, what would you want to do a thing like that for? And she says, because he loves you, Bill. And that just hit me like a ton of bricks. I thought, here, I was a worm down on the speck of dust called planet Earth. And she said that the God of the universe loved me. And I, I just couldn't take it in. It the thought just staggered me. Well, that began a spiritual search for me that lasted about six months. I read the New Testament from cover to cover. And as I did so, I was absolutely captivated by the person of Jesus of Nazareth. His words had a ring of truth about them, and his life had an authenticity about it that wasn't characteristic of these people who claimed to be his followers in that local church I was going to. Well, to make a long story short, at the end of that six months, I yielded my life to Christ and experienced an inner spiritual rebirth in which God became a living reality to me, a reality that I've walked with now for over 40 years. Uh, and that I believe anyone can find if he'll just seek it with an open heart and open mind. As I said earlier, I'm not disputing uh, Dr. Craig's uh, beliefs and his uh, sincerity in feeling that's true. Although I will say that others have been just as happy. I don't know if, uh, since Dr. McCraig hasn't disputed or proven that Mormonism isn't true, the Joseph Smith story, that means he's willing to accept Mormonism. And I, I still don't know if they're considered Christians in your mind as they consider themselves. And we can talk about Hindus, Muslims, and any others who have become very happy because of their beliefs. But I still prefer to be reality-based even if sometimes it means I won't be as happy uh, based on what I uh, feel is true. Next question up here. Well, Dr. Silverman, um, you keep uh, using the term that we can have uh, moral improvement and we have shown moral improvement, correct? To say moral improvement presupposes an ideal or standard of perfection by which to compare. In other words, you cannot call something an improvement without something greater to compare. What is that standard by which you are judging improvement? Well, when I talk about moral improvement, that's generally the case that, just as I said, within all religions that have survived, if all they wind up doing is killing others, that doesn't work. Like with Christianity, we did have the Crusades. Uh, we've learned that those things are wrong. And most of the time we've moved more toward humanistic principles that I think we all religions have in common, the love thy neighbor stuff, and also humanism has in common. Uh, there's no light at the end of the tunnel that I can see where everyone will be perfectly moral. But over time we learn what works and what doesn't work. Uh, what goes wrong. And I know things that I've changed based on more knowledge and experience. For instance, when I was uh, about 15 years old, many years ago, I used to think that uh, gays were a bunch of perverts and child molesters. 
I got to know some, I thought they were decent people, and now I feel comfortable saying they're equal and they should have the same rights that anyone else has. I'm married to uh, my wife Sharon, we're very happy. I think uh, gays should also be able to marry. So that's one way I've personally changed in my moral uh, views based on what I've learned. I don't think we should just go by what was written 2,000 years ago about gays, about women, about blacks, or any other group that keep people uh, from behaving in a way that I think we've learned to be more moral based on experience and knowledge of the world. I love this question because it is so philosophically perceptive. Did you hear the, the questioner's point? To talk about moral improvement as opposed to simply moral change, you need to have an objective standard by which you can say that the present views are better than the older views. Otherwise, all you register is moral change of views, but not moral improvement. So in affirming moral improvement, Dr. Silverman is in effect affirming an objective standard of morality, which his atheism cannot provide. Uh, humanism, which he wants to espouse, is merely faith in the objective value of human beings in an atheistic world. It is whistling in the graveyard, pretending not to notice the darkness, not to notice the impending nihilism, that is closing all around you and trying to have a sort of cheery affirmation of the worth of human beings that was affirmed by traditional Christian views of man once having let now go of God and let go of any value or, or rather any foundation for the affirmation of that intrinsic value of human beings. Let's hear our next question. Alright, um, first I want to thank you all for coming and I think I'm in the wrong line. This question is actually for Dr. Silverman. But um, the, so I apologize for that. But um, it, 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 they need a quick answer. But uh, the question I have is that we, your point, and I think we can kind of agree on this, is that the um, the moral standard by which we make our laws and such that's a moral construct. And um, if it's a moral construct, then why should we subscribe to it? Why Why do you, you know, if you get a parking ticket and you know you have the choice of telling the cop, well, I was parking for a funeral for you know for whatever reason, why should you not say, why should you not lie to that cop? You know, if you lie to him, you can get out of it. But, uh, and that may be a simple answer, but I was curious. We're still going to start with you so that we don't get off on the time. Okay. Oh, okay. Uh, I don't think you put the question exactly right, but the question, I think, is nevertheless a good one, in that what you're saying is that if there is no objective moral values, if moral values are just the byproducts of biological and social evolution that have been ingrained to us, then they're not binding upon us. The person who chooses criminal activity isn't really doing anything wrong. He's just flouting the social conventions. And this is especially evident when you have cultures that have different values. By what right or standard can you say that National Socialist Germany was morally wrong in incarcerating Jews homosexuals and gypsies and sending them to the gas chambers. Now why are they wrong and liberal democracies are right? Why was Afrikaner South Africa wrong in perpetuating apartheid rather than just different from the West? 
These are just social conventions akin to driving on the right side of the road in the United States versus the left side of the road in Britain. And there isn't any right or wrong about that. These are just social conventions. So, as I say, the rapist who flouts the herd morality isn't really doing anything morally wrong. He's just acting unfashionably. And it seems to me that that's an utterly implausible view of moral values. It seems to me that in moral experience, we do apprehend a realm of objective moral values and duties, and any argument that the atheist can run about being skeptical about that realm of objective moral value and duty, I could run a parallel argument about why we should be skeptical about the physical world around us. If we're justified in accepting our sensory intuitions about the physical world of objects around us, it seems to me we're just as justified in believing in the reality of objective moral values and duties uh, on the basis of our moral intuitions. And the question was about uh, why not lie and try to get away with things. I, I, when I quoted Abraham Lincoln, when I do good, I feel good. When I do bad, I feel bad. That's in large part why we act as we do. Again, uh, coming back to this objective morality, uh, if there is an objective morality, it's important then to know what it is. Because we have, in my view, only one life to live, and we want to make the best of it here. We're not preparing for an afterlife. And uh, groups that have viewed this objective morality, like Christopher Columbus coming to the U.S. or, at, or North America, and having an objective morality that the Native Americans didn't have and trying to wipe them out to, or try or get them to behave like us, that I think we recognize today is wrong. And we want to work with other human beings. And that's why uh, you, first of all, you, you were saying that you were uh, very happy when you found Jesus, but you seem to criticize humanists for being cheery. We like this life and we want to make the best of it and be cheerful, but at the same time, we don't want to uh, uh, ignore reality. Next question over here. So I timed my question. It's 28 seconds. I'm going to speak very quickly. Okay, Dr. Soman, you stated that the belief in a God derives from fear and awe of the phenomenons of nature such as thunder and earthquakes and floods. And as a believer in Christ as God, I would say that Weather is not as important to me as consistent morality. So my question is about your definition of morality, which is human-created in order to maintain a civil, a civil society subject to change because society is evolving. So if that's true, do you believe that it is possible for components of morality, such as murder, rape, and incest, that could be subject to change one day? Or are there some components of morality that are indeed constant and absolutely unchanging? Some 
elements that are not subject to change and they are constant and absolutely unchanged. Hey, wait, 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 wait. Well, okay. well, He's had to change. Well, as, as I say, there are just certain things that seem inherently wrong, and I can't prove that they are wrong. All I know is these things that I think are inherently wrong, I can look at uh, justification in ancient books and see where they've been applied, including the Bible. And now we're reinterpreting some of these passages only because I think humans have evolved to learn what works best and what doesn't. So therefore, Christianity was, was once justified in North and South Carolina. Southern Baptists came about because they wanted to keep slavery as an issue. I think now we've learned, all of us, that that's wrong. But we need, I think, to look at what works best for humans, not what people two to 3,000 years ago wrote that worked best for them. And I think the Bible and other ancient texts were written by human beings without any inspiration elsewhere. Thank you. Yeah, the longer Dr. Silverman talks, the deeper he digs himself into this hole, it seems to me. Uh, morality is correct as a product of evolution, then it's perfectly possible that certain things like murder, incest, rape, cruelty could somehow evolve under different conditions so that they would be morally acceptable. In fact, he thinks that maybe they once were. And it's, it's meaningless to talk about the right direction of evolution on a naturalistic view. If you noticed his last answer that you gave, what it amounted to was saying, if it feels good, do it. Remember he said for the quote from Abraham Lincoln, whatever makes you feel good, then that's the right thing to do. If it feels good, do it. Well, that is free license for the racist, the pedophile, the uh, child abuser, uh, you know, to do whatever that person wants. And, and that seems to me to be just morally unconscionable. We have got about 10 minutes left to our questions. If your question has been answered or kind of been answered, Let's not ask it again just because you waited in line a really long time. So if you've got a unique or different question that has yet to be addressed by our, by our debaters, that would be great. I apologize, we're probably not going to get to everybody's question, but let's make sure we get in as many unique questions as possible, and we're going here. his personal experience of receiving religion, yes. uh, Christianity. I have, I was not born a baby atheist, and as many of my fellow um, so-called atheist agnostics here grew up in the church, spent an enormous amount of time, but the one thing I came away with, like a ton of bricks, was do unto others as they do unto you. And um, I, my question was sort of answered by you already, but if I may ask, the um, morality issue that you dwelled upon a lot, how in the eons and eons of time that you seem to acknowledge it existed since the Big Bang, how did that morality play itself out in any form without us? Without what? Without, without the humans as we know them now, that, you know, so much of... Well, it would mean that moral values would have certain uh, conditions to them. For example, if any children exist, 
it would be wrong to torture them. Uh, and, and that's true even if there are no children. Uh, or if a human being exists, he or she should be treated as an end in himself and not as a means to an end. So e even in the absence of human beings, there are still these absolute moral values that will involve moral imperatives. And Dr. Craig keeps talking about objective morals that apparently he knows, like rape and murder are wrong, but I'm wondering how he decides these objective morals, because it apparently uh, doesn't come from the Bible, because we can have many quotes that show that what we think today is immoral, uh, seemed moral at, at the time. And I just do want to mention one uh, interesting study that was at Yale University in the 1960s, where there was an obedience test. Uh, it was known as the Milgram with the knowledge that I have, still seeking more knowledge and learning how to live life better. I think the atheistic mantra that there's no evidence for God just rings hollow after an hour's debate in which six arguments for God's existence have been presented with virtually no response to these arguments. Uh, there's been no response to the ontological argument, the contingency argument, the argument for the beginning of the universe. We have very good evidence that the universe is not eternal in the past. The question, what caused God, is a, a nonsensical question because the premise is whatever begins to exist has a cause, not whatever exists has a cause. The, the atheist thinks that the universe didn't need to have a cause because it's always existed. It never came into being. But that's been undermined by modern cosmology. The moral argument, uh, again, we've seen that without a transcendent foundation for moral values, we're just lost in relativism. So it seems to me that what Dr. Silverman ought to do tonight is he ought to become a Christian who doesn't believe in biblical inerrancy. That would be a perfectly consistent conclusion for him to draw as a result of tonight's debate, that God exists, that he's revealed himself in Christ, but he's not ready yet to believe in biblical inerrancy. And I would be thrilled uh, if he would make a decision like that tonight, which is what I think the evidence is. For more information and resources from Dr. Craig, go to reasonablefaith.org.